Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Children have their own legends, games, and mythologies. There's even a name for it in scholarly circles, child lore. You might imagine, given all the differences between kids, country, culture, class, race, media consumption, that this child lore might be vastly different from place to place. But the strange thing is, many of the little things kids say and do or draw in their notebooks are remarkably, kind of shockingly similar across time and place. These bits of culture have proven remarkably durable, crossing oceans and adapting at times to new norms. We'll talk about child lore today, what you remember from your rhyming days, and what happens when you discover a bit of your own lore has a racist or dark origin. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Happy Friday, everybody. In a story for The Atlantic, Julie Beck writes of the culture of children. That lore can be widespread and long-lasting. The mind boggles to think how many generations of children have played tag, for instance. Even seemingly more modern inventions, such as the cool S, a blocky, graffiti-ish S that's been etched into countless spiral-bound notebooks, are a shared touchstone for many people who grew up in different times and places in the U.S. But the big question is why, and maybe also how. The answers to those questions are sort of about children, but they're also about how all culture seems to form, morph, change, and, and endure. Joining us to discuss is Julie Beck herself. It's good to talk with you, Julie. Hi, Alexis. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And we've also got Rebecca Willett, who's a professor, uh, professor at the Information School at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks, Alexis. Thanks for um, including this important topic in your mm-hmm. show. Um, Julie, it is the holidays, and I want to start off with a very important tradition um, shared by children, um, at least across the United States and seemingly in most of the Anglophone world. And that is Jingle Bells, Batman Smells. (laughs) This is definitely part of my own childhood, but it turns out it's actually parts of lots of people's childhood. Yes, I was actually talking to a British folklorist about this, and he told me that, yeah, essentially all over the English-speaking world, people have some version of of Jingle Bells, Batman Smells. Um, Although when we were talking, he, so so when I was growing up, the second line after Jingle Bells, Batman Smells was Robin laid an an egg. Yeah. Okay, so you get it. Um, but he said his was Robin flew away. Um, so even though this thing is so popular and widespread, like there are these sort of more more local morphing variations. Like this one kind of blew me away because it struck me, you know, like if there were a BuzzFeed list of like things 90s kids know, you know, this Jingle Bells Batman Smells would have been on it. Um, it and so I, I guess what I, what surprised me was the durability of it and that it stretched back so far in time. Is that true of like a lot of this kind of child lore that it's able to really stick around? Yeah, I think it depends on the thing. And I'm sure that Rebecca can speak to this um, a little bit more. But 
you know, there are are things like tag or even the Jingle Bells Batman smells that like generations of kids know. Um, and then there are things that sort of come and go or are very local or they're very tied to something in pop culture. Um, like my friends and I on the playground would always play Hocus Pocus and like pretend to be the witches from Hocus mm. Pocus. And like, mm-hmm. you know, kids weren't doing that before Hocus Pocus was around. Um although they've made another one now. So maybe it's, it's coming back, but you know, there are things that come and go and we just don't, um, you know, maybe have as much collective nostalgia for those things because they're not shared, but there is a lot that, that is shared across time. Rebecca, how did you get into studying this as an academic field? Like why this kind of folklore? Oh, thanks for asking that. Um, So I come from a childhood studies um, perspective, and childhood studies is really... um, I did not know that was a thing in academia. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yeah. And um, it's often we think about children um, from a developmental psychology perspective, um, and we think about children... um, as as becoming as progressing through these kind of pre-given stages on their way to adulthood um and a childhood studies perspective really tries to think of what it means to be a child in this moment in this historical moment in uh different cultural spaces um and so being a child is is partly going through these ages and stages, but there are many many ways of experiencing childhood so seeing child children as both beings and becomings allows us to see these complexities, this this variety of of social and cultural forces at play um, in being a child. And it demands that we talk um, with children to find out how they are experiencing childhood. Um, And so really, um, my interest in the space is kind of Almost as an anthropologist, this is a these are cultural texts and cultural practices that have deep meaning um, in this this uh, being of a, a child, and it's very fleeting. They go through childhood very quickly, um, and so trying to kind of capture um, some of. Uh, what it means, what what the meanings are connected to these texts and practices that we see in children's play um, was one of my my um, kind of interests. I um, also study children's media cultures, and um, there are common narratives around um, children's play and children's media that media are are usurping children's play. Children don't know how to play anymore, um, and so. Th- you know, my my primary kind of uh, focus of investigation is um, so what does play look like, um, and what does media based play look like? Can we categorize it in in different ways, and mm-hmm. how do we kind of counteract some of these common assumptions that media is is pushing play uh, children can't play anymore? You know, Julie, you kind of mentioned it earlier, but there is this really interesting relationship between, you know, produced media, professionally produced media, or now, you know, whatever, TikToks or these other things, versus child lore. And so what is the actual relationship between those two things? Yeah, so what the researchers I spoke to told me is, like, the media itself is not child lore. Like, that was made by adults with children in mind. Um, But for something to be child lore, it has to be created by or adopted by or changed by um, children. So like a game that the kids are playing that they made up on the playground 
where they're all being Paw Patrol characters, like that's child lore, but Paw Patrol itself is not child lore. And, and, and again, it's probably not the kind of child lore that's gonna, um, you know, live for generations. Um, no offense to Paw Patrol. (laughs) Definitely offense to Paw Patrol. That shows. Okay. All right. All right. But you know, I, I think that's, um, something that is very, child lore that's very of the moment but it is still child lore mm-hmm. um the other thing and and maybe even rebecca told me this sorry if um it was someone else but i, I it's it's something where we as adults to some degree are perpetuating um the child lore of our own use because we might be working it into um the media that we're creating that we're then passing on to our own children. So like any, anything that kids are consuming pretty much, unless they're learning it from each other is made by adults. And so we do have a role in perpetuating that as well. It just sort of depends if they resonate with it and take it and run with it. Yeah. Rebecca, um, what makes a piece of child lore stick? And maybe you could give us a couple of examples (laughs) of things that have really kind of entered children's culture. Yeah. So I think going back to the idea that there are some continuities in child lore, um, there are there are reasons that that children play. Right. So it's very enjoyable. Um, They also play because it's it's social. They're performing all sorts of um, social parts of their lives. They're exploring. They're making meaning of of um, the culture surrounding them. They're holding up things for parody, right? Like like Batman. Um, and so that's one of the, the kind of enduring uh, purposes that, that texts and practices keep happening. And they're this, they're, we can trace a lot of the specific texts, but we can also um, trace the, the forms. And so if you think about um, things like war games, war games have probably been played for millennia right um they might look much the same um kids running around with um various weapons there's goodies and baddies um the playground i observed it was call of duty right which is a video Mm. game um and so but the the kids didn't actually most of them didn't play Call of Duty. It was the cool thing, right, to mm. say. And they'd enter the game and they'd say, okay, who are, who are the goodies? Who are the baddies? And they grab these names, right, these kind of like disembodied textual references and start playing this game that has this very enduring mm. structure, right? Mm. And so like going back to the purposes, like there's this structure um, that is easy to adapt, it's easy to make cool, um, and it does, it serves their purposes, which are social, which are kind of making sense of, you know, these are, some of these kids um, are from war-torn countries, so they're making sense of that, they're making sense of, um, you know, goodies and baddies and power dynamics. So um, the the text, the functions, the practices um, all really work um, well together. And I think that's why we kind of keep seeing these um, repeated um, or um, enduring kinds of mm-hmm. uh, folklore. Yeah. We are talking about child lore. It's the games and legends shared by children and oftentimes across cultures in surprising ways. 
We're joined by Rebecca Willett, who's a professor at the Information School at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We're also joined by Julie Beck, whose article inspired the show. Uh, she's a senior editor at The Atlantic, and the article was, Why Did We All Have the Same Childhood? We would love to hear from you on this. Like, if you're thinking about Jingle Bells, Batman Spells, and that's sparking something, a, a children's rhyme, a game that you played... Uh, what do you remember from your own childhood? The number is 866-733-6786. I'm also oftentimes made fun of in my family for not remembering my childhood. So what's something your kids or even your grandkids do that you also did as a kid? And it's kind of surprising because it feels like something that was part of your childhood and now is part of theirs. Again, the number is 866-733-6786 on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at KQED. Org. Um, Julie Beck, uh, quickly as we go into the break, do you have a favorite like little childhood rhyme? Oh my goodness. That's so hard. <laughs> I, think, um, I think it would probably be one of the, the clapping games. I used to really love those, like the Miss Mary Mac like clapping game. Do you remember that? I don't. Is that like where you're like, one, two, three, four. I'm like clapping here in the booth. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like, you know, Miss Mary Mac, 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 all dressed in black, black, black. And <laughs> she had buttons, buttons, buttons all down her back. And then you would do like the clapping with it. Oh, it was so fun. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that actually does really sound fun. If you remember one of those and you want to call in and you want to do the clapping thing, the number again is 866-733-6786. We're talking about child lore, games of legends from childhood shared across cultures. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about child lore, the games and legends shared by children all over the place and in different times. Joined by Julie Beck, senior editor at The Atlantic, who wrote the article that inspired the show, Why Did We All Have the Same Childhood? Rebecca Willett, professor uh, at the Information School at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, also joins us. And um, Rebecca, I wanted to ask you if you have one of those you know, special little pieces of <laughs> child lore rhymes. I I did love jump roping when when I was a child. If I didn't have a friend, I would just tie the jump rope to 
to a door handle um, and try to try to do it that way. Um, I love the skill of it. I love having having the songs to go with it. Um, and, uh, you know, just just different ways of making it harder and easier, you know, going faster. Never got into double dutch. I think now maybe I would. I wish I had. <laughs> Do you remember like any of the little songs? Do, can you can you perform one for us? Oh, teddy bear, teddy bear, of course. <laughs> teddy bear, teddy bear, turn around. Teddy bear, teddy bear, touch the ground. Um, yeah. Yeah, I have. I, I I mean, you know, the producers are making fun of me that I don't remember any of these things. But um, it it is I think it is extremely. Um, y- yeah, some people, I think, really remember these things very deeply and, and other people don't. So this is all this is hilarious. Um, let's go to uh, Alexandria in Santa Rosa. Welcome. Hi, good morning. I love this subject so much. I taught kindergarten for 25 years. And um, one of the things that I noticed on the playground when I was observing, it was actually Montessori for 25 years, was that there's a certain intonation that I used when I was a child and observing that the children on the playground used, and I'm 61, so that was a long time ago when I was a kid, and then my own children, that um, the children used when they were describing scenarios to each other and, like, directing the play and they would use this narr- this this intonation that sounded like, so when I went over to the car, and then you got up on top of the car, and, and then, then we got down, oh, yeah. yeah, and they would just like this, yeah. and then, and and then, and, they, and it always ended like in an upper mm-hmm. intonation, like they would always end on a high note, and that was exactly, it's like, my God, they're, they're using exactly the same intonation yeah. that I did. When I was a child, like I, no, and that's not taught. It's just, it's just how they describe the narrative. Yeah, was yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alexandria, I know. I totally, I, I know this. My daughter, in particular, is a very strong user of, and then, and and that form of like putting together a narrative. Rebecca, well, this right, my and then theory... ending on the higher note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rebecca, my um, theory on this one has always been this is them like beginning to like piece together causality narrative. One thing happens and then the other. But is it just a funny way they talk? Like, is there not actually a theory to it? (laughs) Well, a play is performative and it sounds like you're talking about pretend play in particular. So there are these these things these intonations, these inflections that are part of our our culture that they pick up, right? Um, And so that those kinds of things mark their pretend play as performance. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they're, you know, they're they're using those kinds of um, references, those kinds of um, signals of performance to really um, say this is pretend. This is this is not real. This is my pretend voice. Um, so it, it's that the, the kind of and then I think also gives them space to think, right? To plan ahead because uh, imaginative play. Uh, we, I saw a lot of imaginative play, and it's always different, right? Mm-hmm. right? Um, there's there's slight variations. It takes time to, to 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 think on the spot, so I think that's another purpose of the mm-hmm. and then, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. 
You know, Julie, one of our listeners writes in with a very funny one, uh, which is a listener tweets, what about the floor is hot lava? Every kid does this either on jungle gym playgrounds or couches in the living yeah. room or out in the I mean this is that's clearly in the child lore category, right? It is. It is. So this comes under the category that um Peter and I and Iona Opie, who uh started the the whole kind of child folklore uh collection in the nineteen fifties, they call that category chasing in difficult environments. <laughs> um and you're right, it's one of those enduring right structures of play that is so adaptable so right now it's lava very appropriate for uh today given the hawaiian situation um but they recorded in the 50s um pirates shipwrecks where the floor um was the sea and then anyone who stepped into the sea um would become the pirate uh, when i was observing kids were using hula hoops and they if they stepped outside the, the hula hoops they're in these kind of zombie lands this is the the era of uh plants and zombies those mm. uh, video games so like zombies were all over the playground um and so yeah again it's a it's a structure that is is very enduring and so flexible for children to make it their own yeah Gosh, that's so chasing in difficult environments. I actually need to read that paper. That sounds very fun, Julie. Uh, Julie Beck, you know, one of the things that occurred to me just because I have heard kids now using the same rhyme, uh, it's the the rhyme eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and then it has these, these other uh, components. And I learned that as a kid for sure, and kids still learn it. But when I got older... Um, I discovered that, you know, the that said that rhyme had like a racial slur for black people, the, the worst one in it for a portion of its time, like here circulating among children, uh, at least in the United States. And I was wondering how you think about how to, how to reckon with the fact that because this is our culture, because, you know, racism has been in the culture for a very long time, it also gets embedded in these child lore bits yeah, that's totally true. And I went through the same progression as you, where we definitely did eeny, meeny, miny, mo as kids, not with the racial slur in it, but um, with like tiger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think kids still do that today. Mm-hmm. And surely I didn't know the history until I was an adult. And I'm sure the kids today don't know the history until they are adults. But that is one thing, too, where like when certain pieces of folklore, whether it's adult folklore or children's folklore, endure for so long. Um, they carry that history with them, and some of that history is not good. Yeah. Rebecca, how do you, like, how should I try and reckon with this with my kids? Because I, in in my mind, what I ended up doing, I said, like, well, you know, someone else may know that history, and they may feel hurt by that history. You know, Black people in America, I think, are much more likely to know the history than white people in America. Uh, or anybody who's not black, for that matter. And so how, like, I I basically tell my kids, don't use it because you might be accidentally hurting somebody else and you're kind of calling into the room this racist history for some people. On the other hand, there is such, it it also shows the change that culture can make because, you know, at at least I've never heard a kid use the racist version. I've only ever heard uh, Tiger in my life. Yeah, absolutely. And um, thanks for highlighting um, both a histor- historical component, but also um, the the ways that these texts are embedded with um, sometimes um, 
uh, seriously racist um, power dynamics um, and and texts. So I think you know, as a parent, you um, address these issues wherever and whenever they come up, and um, you have a consistent. Um, kind of entry point or a way of discussing these ideas. Um, and I just applaud you for kind of recognizing that they they are historical. I think that's super important to um, kind of just um, highlight the 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 enduring nature of these these practices and these these power dynamics. Um, but I would say that you know these be, childhood because it's such a short a space of time these these texts are constantly changing mm -hmm. um and 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 kids again you know kids are making meaning so when d words are are used they sometimes they just don't know the meaning and they pass over them mm -hmm. um sometimes they change them to make their own meaning from them um I have an example of, um, I hope someone in the audience knows when Susie was a baby. Um, it's a, a rhyme that goes, um, takes Susie through her different um, ages and stages. Um, and when she gets to be a teenager, um, the original was something like when Susie was was a teenager, a teenager. When Susie was a teenager, she went like this. Ooh, ah, I've lost my bra. I left my knickers in my boyfriend's car, which has some sexual innuendos. Um, when I heard it on the playground. Possibly the more than innuendo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I heard it in the 2000s, it was when Susie was a teenager, she went like this. Ooh, ah, I lost my phone. I left it in my boyfriend's car, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I... I sanitization of that rhyme mm -hmm. but also mm -hmm. kind of um uh, something that maybe they were more comfortable with right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. things are the, these texts are, are constantly changing um based on the discussions they're having with parents and mm -hmm. other adults um the the kinds of um discourses they're very very aware of um surrounding discourses um around um sexual practices yeah. racist practices right and so they they're constantly uh, the op's call this the wear and repair of of children's texts that happens um because these are texts that are practices as well mm -hmm. one of our listeners writes in to say julie i'm gonna toss this one to you uh pam writes pretty sure alexis doesn't remember those rhymes because he was a boy can you talk about gender and child lore yeah, that is wild. I mean, I, I don't know exactly why this came to be, but I did find in, in my research that there are certain um, bits of child lore that for whatever reason have ended up being gendered. Like a lot of times with the clapping games and the jump rope rhymes, like that seems to be popular among girls for reasons unknown. And like maybe Rebecca can can explain it to me because I think it's like once it has become gendered on the playground, you know, like kids will very much be like, that's for girls, that's for boys. And they learned that from somewhere. And then once it's there, you know, they're sort of reinforcing it the way adult society also reinforces gender roles. But I don't know why in the very beginning, mm. like gender rhymes became for girls. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Catherine in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Hi. 
Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Go ahead. Hello? Oh, hey, I can hear you. Go ahead. Oh, my gosh. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, I'm definitely intrigued by this subject because I have experiences where my classmates, this is like in elementary school, they would teach me the Double Dutch song, the Teddy Bear song. And, of course, the Lizzie Borden, uh, where she kills her parents with 40 wax or something. And But then these same children would um, chime in, and because of my Asian-American heritage, my background, they'd say Chinese, Japanese, dirty knees, look at these. And mm. there wasn't really, um, I think, uh, an intent of insidiousness of, you know, towards me or about matricide or patricide in the reference to Lizzie Borden, I think they were just repeating it, not knowing it. Mm. Yeah, kind of the just casual, occasional cruelty of children. Yeah. I and Without knowing it, though, I don't think they even knew what they were saying was bad or good or mm. that many of these children wanted to kill their parents, you know? And right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a really interesting point. I mean, Rebecca Willett, um, you know, we have a, another listener, uh, Linda, who wrote in to say, I was taught in high school that song Ring Around the Rosie had a connection to the plague, although Google says that history is questionable. Still, there was something eerie about watching my three-year-old play it while masked at the playground mm. in the midst of a global pandemic and mm. i do i i guess i you know we're kind of back to this question of like how do we deal with the the origins and the darkness really of children as being you know they're them yeah, trying yeah. to figure out you know on that space between they're becoming someone who's not gonna you know maybe joke about killing their parents but they're being someone who is joking about that whether or not they know it yeah they're there is a, a kind of um, underground of children's play that is private for a reason. Uh, children don't have a lot of autonomy in our society. And that um, is, you know, has been increasing at least since the 1950s when um, a lot of the, the original kind of child lore studies were taking place. So we're, um, as a society in the U.S. at least, are uh, much more aware of, of risks and much more concerned about risks. Children are in after-school care more. Um, they're more heavily surveilled. And so um, these private spaces um, are sometimes um, surprising when adults get a little peek in them or when they remember them, um, all the phantasmagoria that went on there. And um, I'm, I'm not any in any way, shape or form a psychiatrist. Um, but you know, there are reasons that children um, uh, explore these mm. kind of mm -hmm. phas phantasmagoric kinds of of texts, mm -hmm. um, um, and 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 play is one of uh, it's their 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 way of um, experiencing these, and it's a lot safer than actually experiencing right. the horrors, right? right? right, right. Um, so it kind of makes sense that way, but and and it is. Um, something that has been documented throughout history. So um, yeah. in in the Holocaust, children played um, going to the gas chamber, oh my for example. Um, and so, yeah, play serves many functions. Um, and one of them is to live um, things, explore um, dark spaces, but in, in a safe place. Wow. Wow. Um, 
that kind of knock, knocked me for a loop there. Um, a, uh, a listener writes, what about the scary lore of childhood? Uh, kind of to your, to your point here. I was astonished when chatting with a teenage cousin recently, one on the East Coast, who recounted the myth of Cropsy to me. I first heard of Cropsy when I was a teenager on the East Coast in the 70s. Cropsy is the deranged escaped murderer with a hook for a hand who may be hiding in the woods, whose tale is told around campfires. In retrospect, he's a useful tool to keep kids from wandering away from the campsite during the night. His tale is still being told all these days later. Um, There are a couple of other memories uh, I wanted to get to before we go to the break here. Um, And we'll get to more phones right after that. Matthew writes in to say... I'm 65 and grew up in the South Bay during Mad Men times. One of the go-to games for the kids on our block was cigarette tag, where you had to squat and say a cigarette brand to be safe from tagging. You couldn't say the same brand twice, and the game went on for a long time. We all had Lucky Strike, Benjamin Hedges, Winston at the tips of our tongues because commercials for these products were included with our cartoons and cop shows. Uh, You know, Julie, I just wanted to bounce that to you briefly because we know that pandemic tag was also a thing, right? Yes, I was going to bring that up. Um, A colleague of mine, Kate Cray, wrote another article early in the pandemic. I mean, honestly, this must have been like April 2020, that kids were, yeah, playing COVID tag, coronavirus tag, etc. And I think it, um, you know, parents were concerned at the time, like, is this okay? Are my kids okay? Are they feeling like really traumatized? And, um, you know, at the time, they said, it's, you should not be worried. It's totally fine. Like that is how they are processing. And even when I was reporting this piece, um, the the British folklorist Steve Rowd, who I was talking to, said that kids used to play cholera tag, you know, back in Victorian Jeez. times. So wow. there you go. Kids are humans. I mean, that's kind of the deeper uh, uh, the, the deeper theme of this show. We're talking about child lore, the games and legends shared by children across cultures with Julie Beck, senior editor at The Atlantic, who wrote the article that inspired the show, Why Did We All Have the Same Childhood? And we also have Rebecca Willett, professor at the Information School at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, came out of childhood studies, studying uh, kids becoming and being. We'd love to hear from you what classic kids, rhymes, or games do you remember from your childhood? The number is 866-733-6786 or Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about child lore with Julie Beck, a senior editor at The Atlantic, and Rebecca Willett, who's a professor at the Information School at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Let's uh, go back to the phone. We have some interesting games questions. Uh, John from Chico, welcome. 
Hi, thank you. Take my call, Alexis. Um, I'm interested in, about uh, how about the uh, children's playground game Foursquare. How mm-hmm. incredibly child organized and centered it is, and how it stands in contrast to at least in a lot of parts of the United States, for example, in contrast to the adult organized children's soccer where kids, you know, parade out there in the little uniforms that we put on them, and how Foursquare seems to be exquisitely child-centered and child-organized, and and again, passed on through the ages, and I'd like to hear a mm-hmm. discussion about Foursquare. Great question, John. Um, I, here's how I would bounce it to you, Rebecca. Foursquare, child lore. Soccer, definitely not child lore. Is that right? <laughs> Well, it's a little more complicated than that, but I love the example of Foursquare. People have studied all the ways that children make up different rules for Foursquare um, and um, kind of account for the social situation. Um, And so it is a fascinating space. I was also really thrilled to see um, during the pandemic, during the early stay at home phase, that the kids really took over the streets in my neighborhood. And I saw Foursquare chalked chalked in the street and and kids playing. Um, So it's both um, an adaptable game um, in terms of like being able to make up different rules, being able to take account of the different ages, um, different um, kind of social circumstances in, in, in that game. But also um, it's, it's, it's a game about space and kids taking over a space that um, I really um, mm-hmm. found fascinating during the yeah. pandemic. Um, soccer is, yeah, I mean, definitely, um, an an enduring game, right? Ball games in general have, um, a very long history, um, on the playground, um, Playgrounds often don't have enough space for full soccer games to take place. So there's a lot of adapting going on. There's also different abilities on the playground and everyone recognizes that any game of tag, you can see who the chaser is, right? They're the fastest runners. Um, And in soccer, so we saw kids like playing the referee or playing like a computerized version of a referee that would go around and kind of make silly comments like, good goal, in a very kind of electronic sounding voice. It's from video games, Um, yeah, yeah. uh, Right, yeah. Yeah. So even soccer um, can be adapted and and kids kind of make it their own. Let's go back to the phones. Um, Blair in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you so much. Um, and I, I really, I've, I've found this uh, topic fascinating because I, I, I've also been a child, of course, and I have a son uh, that's five. Um, and and the, the topic, uh, the conversation around tag um, brought up a, a story from my childhood um, that I thought was somewhat relevant. Um, and obviously tag has been around for forever, but uh, when I was a child in the 90s, um, I, I went to a Boy Scout event and I got home. We were around the table. My parents asked what we did at the, at the Boy Scout event. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it was so much fun. Uh, we played Snag the Fag. And, and as a gay man now, um, you know, this is like fingernails on a chalkboard, of course. Um, and I had no idea what, what that meant. And they said, what? You know, they were shocked and, and kind of appalled. Um, thankfully, I had parents that were appalled at something like that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I said, oh, you know, 
Smear the Queer. It was another name for the game that the kids were, you know, calling it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, this is anyway, this was a learning experience for me as a child because I didn't know what those words meant. And my, my parents uh, luckily taught me about that. But of course, as I've gotten older and, and am a gay man, you know, I look back at that and think, wow. But it, it just goes along with the, the topic that, you know, the, yeah. the, um, you know, the game is, is, has been around for forever, but they, the time and place takes on its own meaning or names. And anyway, I, it was relevant. I, I thought I'd share yeah, it. Yeah, no, Blair, and, uh, thank you so much. I mean, for letting me. you know, how have you, like when things have come up with your own kids that maybe, like, do you think that the experience that you had as a kid with the game being called that, do you do you think that's changed the way that you approach what they might be talking about or what the the types of little rhymes that they're using? You know, I mean, I I think that the kids kind of um naively approach the world, right? And and so my my kids have said certain things to me where I'm like, "Oh my gosh." You know, like I yeah, like the color of their friend's skin and, you know, mm-hmm. um you know saying that that it, oh, you know, his skin's the color of poop, you know? And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, <laughs> you know, you right. don't say that, even though, of course, it's, it's totally, I mean, there, there's no thought there. There's no you know, reason right. it, um, uh, that, that's bad. But, you know, I think that these, like the story from that I just shared, it, they're, they're opportunities as a parent to kind of go, um, <laughs> this is, you know, this, that might not be like the the best thing to be saying, you know, and um, I, I do think it does seem like maybe some of the, you know, the terms around, you know, queer and and snag the fag. I mean, I do live in San Francisco, so I might be um, tainted by by the woke atmosphere around here, if that's the term, uh, the current term to use. But, you know, I do think that at least the kids that my my kids are socializing with, the families that we yeah. are around, um, aren't using those terms. Maybe there's something else current that that's going on that I haven't yeah. learned yet. But yeah. maybe we're progressing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Thank thank you for letting me uh, share my story. Oh, no, hey, thank you so much, Blair. And you know, we had gotten uh, a couple other comments also looking back on on that game and. Um, and and I think a lot of people feeling a lot of um, shame and sadness about that. You know, G wrote in uh, to say, looking back on that later, I can't believe that was what we we called it and, and saying quite horrible. Another listener uh, wrote in uh, to say, I learned about racism from Eeny Meeny. I came home from kindergarten and told my mom that I had learned this new rhyme and recited the full rhyme with the full N word. She gasped, then told me what it meant and explained about racism and why it was wrong and how it could affect the people we knew. I have never forgotten uh, that that moment. Um, let's um, go back to the phones. Uh, Raina in Sebastopol, welcome. Hi, this hey. is Raina. Welcome, Raina. Hey, hi. Good morning. I'm so happy to be talking to you. I grew up in both the UK and the US, and in both sets of schools, we had um, word games that ne- seemed harmless enough. But we used them to get away with swear words because swear words were so titillating. <laughs> it would be like Julie, Nick and Newly, Confuli, Booberuli, Tina, Nick and Nina. Well, of course, we would find any name that would allow us, like our dog, Buck. And I will not say it, but Buck, Nick and Nuck. <laughs> um, or, hey, words that were used inappropriately, like stag and fag, or um, hunt, Nick and 
nuns con. <clears throat> and so, but this was like, it would send us into fits of giggles in both countries and nothing made us more excited than to get to say it around a teacher or a parent because what could they do? It was the word game. Right. That's right. Yeah, Rena, so interesting, just showing the 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 depth of this kind of type of play. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, Rebecca, these things do seem to hold across at least the, the cultures that share a language, right? And is that because there's a developmental stage when these things really seem to be as titillating as they are uh, to to kids? Sure. Um, yes, the, it is partly developmental stage, um, but it's also again, it's that being thing. They these are, kids do not often have private spaces that are not surveilled by adults, and so anytime they can um, create those spaces in these kinds of clever ways like word games um like subverting the uh, adult surveillance they feel empowered so mm-hmm. um it's it's both that kind of um um result of being in in these spaces that that where they have very little kind of freedom but you know with a friend it makes it even better being able yeah. to you know trick trick the adults um yeah. so yeah. Um, Julie, I want to play a tiny game with you here. We have a bunch of uh, comments coming in. I'm going to just want to know if you've heard these ones. <laughs> okay. um, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. All right. Dave writes, who remembers this? Pretty sure I heard it camping. The gross factor was the hook. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to eat worms. First one greasy, goes down easy. Second one cut in two. Now you know what I eat. Three times a day, suck out the juice, throw the skins away. I do know that song, but I know a slightly different version of that song. Ooh, what is your version? Um, nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. It, and then it's like big, fat, slimy ones, little, skinny, <laughs> greasy ones. Like so, it's similar. That's the one I, I think. That's the one I've heard too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, this one I'm pretty sure we haven't heard, but may- maybe you have. Uh, James writes: As a child in the early '60s, I recall a playground song we sang that was obviously created in the playgrounds of the early '40s. I've often marveled at the fact that the song echoed through the baby boom children. Whistle while you work. Hitler was a jerk. Mussolini, <laughs> Mussolini bit his weenie. Now it will not work. Um, there you go. Uh, I, I assume you haven't heard that one. No, no, I haven't heard that one. That's yeah, good. that one had a half-life. <laughs> and this, I'm almost sure you uh, remember, which is BJ writes in to say, what's the history of those paper folding games? You take a big piece of paper, fold it, write things in the triangles created by the folds, and then open and close it with your hands while saying a phrase of some sort. Where you are when you stop the phrase is the triangle you open. I loved those things. See, I did oh, have yeah. a childhood. It's a cootie catcher. Did oh, is that what you call it? <laughs> or a fortune teller. Fortune teller. Or a fortune teller. Yeah, a cootie catcher. And you would use it to like, yeah, to, I, I guess to like tell your future. Um, you know, you would write your crush's name on the triangle and hope you got that one or something. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to go back to the phones. But first, we're talking about child lore. These are the games and legends that are shared by children across cultures. Got an expert on child lore, Rebecca Willett, professor at the Information School at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and Julie Beck, a senior editor at The Atlantic who wrote the article that inspired this show, Why Did We All Have the Same Childhood? Um, Valerie's got another uh, rhyme example for us. Welcome, Valerie. Thank you. Um, This is really fascinating to listen to. And part of what's really fascinating to me is that 
most of this stuff is a kid-taught culture. Um, by, by the time you're an adult, you've forgotten most of most of the rhymes. I do have one uh, jump rope rhyme that I remember from my childhood in the mid to late 50s, and it seems to speak to sibling rivalry, I think. Went fudge, fudge, call the judge. Mama's got a newborn baby. Wrap it up in tissue paper. Drop it down the elevator. How many floors will it drop? And then you jump double time, and when you finally make a mistake, that's how many floors it'll drop. One, two, three, four, five, six, like that. Oh, my gosh. Well, and, you know, that one is, you know, Rebecca, this seems, thank you for sharing this, Valerie. This one seems like such a perfect example of the kind of grisly sense of humor of kids yeah. but also it's you know you're just jumping rope you know i mean there's there's a there's a kind of a weird deep truth in there uh, uh, you know yeah possibly sibling sibling rivalry possibly um just those family when i uh watch kids play families especially some of the the older children as they were kind of transitioning from that pretend play space to um a more kind of inward fantasy space would really uh hold up some things uh for parody right so families children you know vomited and you know they had poopy diapers and you know it wasn't the the kind of um uh mommies and daddies and babies that I played with my nieces when they were young so um I think you know again these are spaces to just play with um things that are in the air things that adults uh don't readily you know talk about um but kids have heard about um so throw them in there and 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 see what happens so here is an interesting uh question from connie uh listener connie writes in to say my eight-year-old has been singing a version of jingle bells with a section of the lyric santa has a gun it goes on he shot a tree and made it pee um, boy, this is definitely kids' rhyme. Uh, I don't like that part of the lyric because I think our culture is extremely violent and didn't want to perpetuate violence in our daily lives. In hearing this show today, I'm wondering if I should back off a little because the kids are working things out from the culture. I don't stop her from singing it, though I call out instances of violence and language when I see it. Do you have an opinion on this? And I know, you know, as you said before, Rebecca Willett, you're you're not a child psychologist, but you have been studying these things. You spent time on the on the playgrounds, like. Um, how to handle. Yeah, yeah. This is a really challenging one um, that a lot of parents face. Um, Kids playing war games as well Mm -hmm. bring up all sorts of um, kind of questions uh, for adults, for for parents. Um, And I know when I talk to parents about this, they they have um, kinds of practices, kinds of um, rules within their family that help them to to guide their decision making. So uh, I'm sure parents will recognize the difference between Star Wars and other kinds of um, games that involve uh, weapons, right? So Star Wars widely um, accepted their 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 lasers rather than guns. It's more fantasy orientated, and I saw that on school playgrounds as well. That Star Wars is, was allowed, but other forms of um, battle type games were not allowed. Um, so I think, you know, every family does have their 
own um, rules, their own kind of sets of guidelines that that they use, and 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 parents know that, kids know that that this is what happens in our family. Um, so if you're going to use that, that that if you're going to sing that song, uh, we need to to think about does that mm-hmm. a- align with our our family principle. Yeah. Um, and again, like the previous caller um, saying that that really was a moment of um, education for them. Mm-hmm. And every time, every time guns are are used in different contexts, they're going to mean different things. So a gun mm-hmm. in the in a song, you know, Santa firing a gun is very different than you know playing with a gun, for example, or drawing a gun, right? And mm-hmm. so that helping children contextualize those things um, is is worth yeah. a discussion too. Yeah, I remember being a kid during the L.A. riots and spending a lot of time watching television, drawing guns, and my mom being quite worried. But I think it was it was my way of, of processing that that moment. Um, a listener writes in, I ran a K-8 through grade after-school program. What always struck me is the development of play through the grades. Kinder and first-grade children would have games with narratives that would change during the game without anyone complaining. Second-graders, on the other hand, would start a, any game with an agreement on the rules of the game for that day, and everyone had a voice. They often took up the same amount of time as the game. But once the game started, everyone about by the rules they created, and if someone didn't, they were banished from the game. If a conflict could not be resolved, every grade would abide by the outcome of rock, paper, scissors, as if it were a Supreme Court decision. Um, Julie Beck, thank you so much for this story. Um, one listener writes in, uh, and I'm just going to give you give you one. I remember cootie shots, circle, circle, dot, dot, dot. Now you have your cootie shot. Um, <laughs> what, what even was that? I mean, it teaches the importance of vaccination. Um, <laughs> I, I don't I don't know. You know, cooties are a big concern when you're when you're young. And like if we are learning to vaccinate each other, like maybe we'll carry that into adulthood. I don't know. <laughs> it's a good way to think about it. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Um, Rebecca Willett, professor at the Information School at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Just fascinating work. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We have been talking about child lore, of course, the games and legends shared by children across cultures, and and so much more. Thank you all so much for uh, calling and writing in. Those are so many good examples, and uh, good luck with all your children. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Form Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.